this is this terror of a tale. Saul allows his anxieties and desperations to drive him to darkness. But how did we get here? Well, you guys know the story. Israel rejected God as their king, and God said, fine, I'll give you a human king. Be careful what you ask for. And you remember how Saul was first described as head and shoulders above every other Israelite? I've said this before, um, Thor from the Marvel movies, uh, that's a good way to think about Saul. When you looked at him, you're like, that is the epitome of what a king looks like. I want that king. And God said, fine, take him. And then God charged Saul to lead Israel well. And for a while, Saul led Israel well because he had Samuel to guide him. Samuel, the last judge, a prophet of God, was there to speak the words of God to Saul. And Saul listened for a time. But then we see the unraveling of Saul in the chapters that precede this text in 1 Samuel, where Saul seeks to fight out the Philistines, which is a good thing to do, and he knows that there needs to be a sacrifice before they go to war, which is a good thing to do. Samuel's nowhere to be found, who is supposed to offer the sacrifices, so Saul thinks, I'm going to offer the sacrifice, which is a bad thing to do. So a first theme of Saul's life, well-intentioned sin is still sin. Saul had a good intention of honoring God through sacrifice before this battle, but it was sin because the offices of prophet, priest, and king were separate at the time. Saul was a king. He had no business offering a sacrifice. Well-intentioned sin is still sin. Saul unravels further and goes further into depravity when God says, hey, Saul, go wipe out all of the army of Amalek. Kill every woman, every man, every child, and all of their livestock. And Saul says, okay, I'm going to go fight Amalek. And instead of killing Amalek, and instead of killing all the livestock and every single pagan in the land, Saul spares Amalek's life. Saul spares the choicest cattle and sheep. Samuel comes around, and he's like, hey, Saul, did you actually tear away? Did you actually purge the land of Amalek? And Saul's like, yes, I did. I did a really good thing. And if you read in, uh, in, in the text, it's kind of like a, a kid running to his parents and like, I, didn't I do this? Like, look at this picture. Isn't it great? Thinking that he's going to put the picture on the, on the refrigerator. But Samuel goes, wait a minute. What's that voice I hear? I hear the voice of Amalek the king. What's that bleeding in my ear? I, I, I hear the lambs. You were supposed to purge this land. And Saul's like, ah, yes, but I got a better idea. I'm going to sacrifice to God everything and, and the spoils of this war. God told me to kill everyone. God told me to purge the land. But I know better than God, and I'm going to sacrifice to God. Showing that partial obedience is disobedience. No matter your intent. So in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel informs Saul that God took his spirit from Saul. Samuel informs Saul that God will rip the throne from Saul and gives it to another, David. And for the last several weeks at church, uh, the, the story of 1 Samuel has centered on David as the main character. The point of view of the chapters has been David. Well, now, as we come to our text, there's a comma in the point of view of David, and we get one final point of view of Saul in this parenthetical phrase, the end of Saul's life. 
Now, uh, one more thing before we continue. The chapter immediately preceding ours, David is so sick and tired of Saul seeking after his life and Saul seeking to kill a rival. For years, he's been hiding in the wilderness. David's like, I'm, I'm sick of relying on the Lord. I'm sick of waiting on the Lord. I'm gonna go to Philistines and I'm gonna seek refuge with my enemy. Before we even get into the text, we can see some application points here, right? God has anointed David. God has promised the throne to David. God has covenanted himself to David and David goes through a a waiting period. And even in sin, God is still faithful to David. What promises are you longing to claim? What goodness is God withholding from you this morning? What has God yet to do in your life that he wants you to do? Contextually, be patient. I don't know if God will fulfill every desire of your heart, but I know he will change the desires of your heart to be content in every way that aligns with his will. Let me read that again. I don't know if God will fulfill every desire of your heart, but I know he will change the desires of your heart to be content in every way that aligns with his will. So our narrative begins now, our text rather, begins as a pause in the narrative of David and we'll pick up with Saul. You guys with me? Verses one and two. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So our uh, text starts as a pausing of the narrative of David, and David uh, finds himself in a conundrum. I vowed myself to the enemy, and now the enemy wants to fight God's people. Do I honor my vow or do I honor God's people? I don't have to answer that question. Joe gets to take that as the texts continue in the next coming weeks. Um, uh, Here's a point, though. Um, You'll see a juxtaposition of David and Saul. Not always does God count our sin against us. The difference between David and Saul, spoiler alert, in uh, the life of David, it's marked by repentance. And in the life of Saul, it's marked by obstinance. So David repents and his merit or lack thereof is not counted as his. We serve a God of grace and mercy through confession and repentance, through faith in the merit of Christ. And that's how David's story comes to a pause. Now here's a nerdy thing that I'm just gonna throw out there because I like nerdy things. Uh, in, in your English Bible, it's set Achish, um, the king of Gath, by the way, Philistia, Gath is the capital city, the king of Gath. Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Literally in Hebrew, this says, you will keep my head all my days. Maybe this is a callback uh, when David chops off the other famous person from Gath, Goliath, chops off Goliath's head. And Achish, the king of Gath, is like, wait, you're going to keep my head. You're not going to chop it off. That's a little nerdy, but we love it. And the narrative of David pauses for us, and we pick up in verse 3 in this parenthetical phrase of a closing of Saul's life. Now, uh, I will read uh, verse 3 for us. Now, Samuel had died, 
And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So the stage is being set. It's reminding us of what has previously happened in the story. And notice here the first four words as this point of view of Saul kicks off. Now Samuel had died. Death surrounds this narrative. As Luther says, it is in, with, and under. It begins with death. And in this setup, we we read that Saul had done a good thing. He had kicked the necromancers and the mediums or the witches or the witch doctors or the shamans out of the land. But again, remember the whole text. Spoiler alert, partial obedience is disobedience. Now, we need to see the seriousness of of, of sorcery. All throughout the Old Testament, Leviticus, Exodus, 2 Kings, Isaiah, Malachi, we read that all forms of sorcery, demonic sorcery, occult sorcery, is a a crime punishable by death. You're like, Gordon, I like Harry Potter. Me too. I'm not talking to you. The occult and demonic sorcery is a crime punishable by death, and Saul has so far obeyed God in kicking it out of the land. Good job, Saul. Verse 4, our narrative continues. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium or a witch, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So further stage setting as our point of view narrative unfolds. Uh, Israel and Philistia are at perpetual war. And we read that the Philistines have encamped at a place called Shunem. Uh, This is geographically cutting Israel in half, east to west across Israel, dividing the north from the south. Essentially, this is setting up Israel's Gettysburg. And we read that Saul, again, does a good thing. As king, you're tasked to protect God's people, like Aslan tells King Frank in the founding of Narnia. Um, First in the attack, last in the retreat, Saul gathers all of Israel, marches on the Philistines. Good job, Saul. Partial obedience is disobedience. Because when Saul saw the army, he was afraid. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer, by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. Now, uh, prophet, priest, and king, the offices are different. Um, Dreams, in the Old Testament, kings received dreams. Solomon received dreams. Nebuchadnezzar received dreams. Um, the, The three offices are separate. God doesn't answer him in a kingly way. God doesn't answer him in a priestly way. The Urim and the Thurim No one really knows what they were, but they think it's stones by which uh, priests would get God's will. So God doesn't answer by that, and he doesn't answer by prophets either. Good job, Saul, marching to war. Good job, Saul, seeking God. 
But hold on. You see, Saul knew the will of God. Saul knew the word of God. Saul knew what his responsibility was. God had already spoken to Saul. Sorry, my PDF just closed. But do you see what just happened here? In partial obedience, knowing full well the word of God, when he saw the army, he was afraid. When he saw the path laid before him, he doubted. When he saw where the will of God would take him, he wanted to alter course. He knew the word of God. He knew the will of God. And yet, because of discomfort and anxieties and fears, he sought out other revelation that would make his path easier. Don't miss this. When life's circumstances cause disturbance, when we're afraid of what lies ahead, when the going gets tough, we doubt God's plan. That's why prosperity preaching is so effective. God wants to prosper you and make your life easy. But oftentimes, God's will God's plan, God's way of life will lead us to a place of discomfort. And guess what? That discomfort does not alter God's plan. That discomfort does not alter God's will or his way of life. Unlike Saul, we must be resolute in our faith that God's ways are best despite the discomfort they may cause. Basically, I'm saying we're called to follow God's paths and his statutes, whether they lead us through the valley of the shadow of death or to Golgotha itself. I'm saying we're to follow God's ways, whether it causes us to lose friends, to lose family, to get canceled in 2023? Do you ever feel like you're asking God for help or for answers and that he isn't hearing or isn't responding? Maybe because like Saul, God has already spoken. Maybe you know what God would have you do and you just don't like it. So you're seeking other options. Even though Saul has partially obeyed God by gathering to battle, even though Saul knows what God would have him do, he still seeks answers that fit his desires. And when God doesn't provide answers that fit his desires, instead of being resolute in the ways of God, he falls to his lowest point yet. We see, where does Saul seek these answers that he wants? from a witch. And do you see the irony here? As one man I read this week said, Saul has purged witchcraft from the land, but he has not purged witchcraft from his life. And that's like us, isn't it? Do as I say, not as I do. Moms, we tell our daughters, don't gossip, and we're the first ones to pick up the phone when Fathers, we tell our sons, don't get mad in sports, don't get mad in school, and we're the first ones to rage when we're passed over for that promotion. Do as I say, not as I do. And Saul's decline continues. He seeks out a witch. Verse 8, so Saul seeks out a witch, and he knows that there's one in Endor. Verses 8 through 10, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what, Samuel has, or what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land, 
Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. A couple things we need to notice in these verses. First of all, the woman is in Endor. Uh, Geographically, if Gettysburg is happening and the Philistines are cutting Israel off from the north and the south, Endor is north, past enemy lines, and Saul has to travel around enemy lines to get to her. What can this teach us? The lengths we go to, to sin. Instead of facing what God would have us do, we literally will go around it and skirt our responsibilities and take a journey around to get to sin. Secondly, Saul put on a disguise, but first, the Bible is uh, quiet in this, but it's implied, instead of uh, firstly putting on a disguise, he has to disrobe. The royal robe that Saul would wear as king, unties it, falls to the floor. Remember, God said he would rip the throne away from Saul. Saul is relinquishing the throne himself. He is disguising himself. Why? Because we hate our sin and we don't want people to know our sin. Saul goes at night. Why? Because it's easier to hide our sin in darkness. He finds this witch. He says, hey, I I need you to talk to a dead man for me and bring him back. And notice here, there's even better reasoning and logic and sense in the witch than Saul, the king of Israel. Because the witch says, are you setting me up? Is this a sting operation? It's probably not a great idea. Saul kicked all the witches out of the land. Saul has a final warning before this. And again, see irony here. Saul looks at this witch, demanding a crime punishable by death and swears to her by the covenant personal name of God. As Yahweh lives, you won't be punished for this. Friends, this is taking the Lord's name in vain. This is blasphemy. Not stubbing your toe and saying, oh my God. Attributing divinity to something that is reprehensible and accursed and punishable by death. A sacred vow to do an unsacred thing. uh, Saul disavows the Lord and blasphemes God. He says, bring up Samuel from me. Verse 11, then the woman said, who shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Again, irony. Bring up a dead man for me, who is a dead man of God, but do this reprehensible act to do it. God won't answer me, so bring up a man of God to answer me. Again, wrought with irony. Saul seeks to hear from God. God doesn't answer, so Saul seeks to hear from a man of God, well-intentioned, Sin, still sin. Now, the next verse after he says, bring up Samuel for me, is verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. So this could be two things. Is this Samuel? It could be a demonic mockery. 
It could be Satan. I don't think that's the case, and here's why. Saul says, bring up Samuel for me. And the very next thing we see is Samuel appearing. There's no seance recorded. There's nothing the witch does to bring him up. And the witch freaks out. So it's almost as if the witch doesn't do anything, and she just sees a spirit. Witches be tripping. There we go. That's where the time. Thanks. Yeah. So if it's not a demonic spirit, what is it? Well, actually, Samuel. And what's happening here? I think God brings back Samuel, not the witch. A couple reasons why I think this is actually Samuel. Uh, it's the plain reading of the text. The witch thinks it's Samuel. Saul thinks it's Samuel. The chronicler uh, implies that it's really Samuel. If we take the Bible as a whole, there's um, precedent for this in the Bible, uh, where a spirit comes back, not necessarily resurrected, but a spirit comes back. Uh, Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come back. They're not resurrected, but their spirits come back. They're sent by God to deliver a message about Jesus. Namely, he fulfills all the law and the prophets. So I think God sends Samuel back to deliver a message. When the woman saw Samuel, she knew him once that it was Saul in disguise. And she freaks out. And Saul reassures her again, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman says, oh, I see an old man coming up out of the earth. And I think Samuel's first words are, okay, you hag, I bet you don't look so good yourself. Because um, she's a witch. That's, uh, thanks. Um, and... Uh, <clears throat> I see an old man coming up out of the ground. And the word here, I see a God, is Elohim in Hebrew. Uh, if you know the Hebrew, like, general name for God is Elohim. Um, this doesn't mean that God came up. It's just a word that can mean spiritual beings. So I see a spiritual being coming up. And uh, Saul doesn't realize it's Samuel until one detail is given. Did you catch that? When the woman said he's wrapped in a robe. Now, every man in ancient Israel, has a robe that they wear. So an old man in a robe shouldn't give anything away. But if we know our Bible really well, remember what happened in 1 Samuel 15? After this final straw that broke the camel's back when Saul doesn't annihilate Amalek, Samuel delivers a prophecy to Saul. Hey, God's ripping his spirit from you. God's ripping his throne from you. And Samuel turns to leave, but Saul reaches out and takes hold of Samuel's robe. And Samuel pulls away, and the robe tears. And he looks at Saul, and he's like, just like my robe just tore, God is tearing the kingdom away from you. So the robe that Samuel's in is that robe that Saul tore. Saul seeks revelation that will fit his desires. He gets revelation that confirms his fate. This robe is a, a memento mori. So Saul falls on the ground to pay homage. Again, because I think this is really Samuel. Our story continues in verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you so you can tell me what I shall do. Again, irony here. Calling on a man of God because God wouldn't answer. Uh, quickly, this is like seeking pastoral counsel because you don't like what the Bible has to say. 
Let me just go to a church that affirms this. If you seek long enough, sure, you're bound to eventually hear something you want to hear. But here's a note. Godly counsel always is rooted in the word of God, whether it fits our wants and whims or not. It's not, jobs, it's not Joe's job to tell you what you want to hear. It's his job by divine appointment to teach you the word of God. And when you come to seek godly counsel, don't be surprised if you receive the word of God, even if you don't like it. This continues in verse 16. And Samuel said, why then did you ask for me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So Samuel repeats a true prophecy that he has already given Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Remember, partial obedience is disobedience. We've heard all this before. What we haven't heard before is what Samuel offers in verse 19, which is new information. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. New information. Tomorrow you're going to die. New information. Tomorrow you're going to lose the battle and die. New information. Tomorrow your sons are going to die and you're going to lose the battle, and you're going to die. Think with me for a moment. If you were hit with this information, you have 24 hours to live. What would you do? You might go skydiving or Rocky Mountain climbing. Yeah. You can say it with me. Or 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Okay, shout out my guy, Tim McGraw. Uh, uh, you, you might do those things, but I think if all of us had a, a notice, you have 24 hours to live, you're going to die tomorrow, I think we would spend at least part, some of that time getting right with the Lord, seeking the Lord, repenting. I have to think Samuel is really here. God really brought Samuel to Saul, his anointed, as one final chance of repentance. God said he's going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days. Nineveh repents in what happens. God relents. Samuel tells Saul, you got 24 hours and God's going to do this. Will he repent? A brief note before we answer that question. Um, notice the book of 1 Samuel is an inclusio. I've, I've talked about that before. It's a, it's a portion of of literature that begins and ends the same way. Um, 1 Samuel begins with three men, Eli and his two sons, dying for sin. 1 Samuel ends the same way, Saul and his sons dying for sin. So in this final chance of repentance, what happens? As our narrative concludes in verses 20 through 25, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground and filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. 
I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, listen to this. You also obey your servant. The witch says, you obey me. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him. And hear this, again, he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate and they rose and went their way. Is Saul going to repent? No, he's going to faint. Remember the setup to this? Saul's coronation day. The man who stood head and shoulders above every other Israelite in his final days is face down in the dirt, prostrated in his own depravity. Don't be tempted to think this is grief over sin. 2 Corinthians tells us godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. This is worldly grief. I'm sorry I got caught. I hate the consequences of what I did, but I don't... Saul doesn't repent. Saul hardens his heart. Now, I hope you heard it. It's like the chronicler wanted to drive home the obstinance and the insolence of Saul. Saul does a good thing, and he seeks out godly counsel. He does it in a bad way. Well-intentioned sin is still sin, but he gets godly counsel. Hey, tomorrow you're going to die. I have to believe it's one more chance to repent. Samuel has spent years getting Saul and trying to get Saul to listen to the words of God, and Saul refuses and hardens his heart. But look who he listens to. He listens to the words of the witch. He listens to the words of his servants, but he won't listen to the word of God. He hardens his heart. He listens to everyone else. This, of course, brings to mind Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving, rebellious heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Saul heard the voice of God on his last day. And Saul hardened his heart in response. Augustine uh, famously said, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow for your procrastination. Friends, some of you have been putting off coming to faith. I got time to do this. Some of you have been putting off repentance. I got time to do this. I like my rebellion right now. I'll deal with it tomorrow. Look at Samuel's final warning to Saul. Friends, in a message on a passage that is permeated with death, it's absolutely appropriate to address the realities of the next life. We might not get a 24-hour notice of our last breath. We might not, might not be able to know when the last chance is we'll have to repent. 
But each one of us here this morning will hear the words of warning of repentance. No longer are the offices of prophet, priest, and king separate. No longer do we inquire of God through dreams and divination. God's will has clearly been revealed in the all-sufficient word of God in his glorious gospel. Jesus Christ, God made flesh, suffered and died so that all who might repent and have faith in him would see the kingdom of God in the next life that is a reality. And Jesus Christ, unlike Saul, didn't disrobe of his divinity. He doesn't put on a disguise, but puts on humanity. He doesn't run from God's will or seek other revelation, but after asking, may this cup pass from me, he marches headfirst to God's, God's will on Golgotha. The discomfort of the cross, the anxieties of the cross were real to our king, but he faced them. We might not have a 24-hour notice before we meet our maker, but we have a notice now. Repent, believe the gospel, and don't delay. 